Welcome back to the Magic of the Spheres podcast. This is Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. Welcome if this is your first time here. I'm an evolutionary astrologer who writes weekly forecasts at monarchastrology.com. Today's episode holds a lot of juicy ideas, especially for those of you who are interested in the underworld and I have a pretty good sense that a lot of the people who read my forecasts have some level of interest in the underworld because a lot of the feedback that I tend to get on my writing is that it's very deep or very full of substance. And that is another way of talking about Pluto, this archetype that has to do with depth and the undercurrents. And so if you have that kind of interest in the taboo or you want to get to the bottom of things or you want to really live a life of deep meaning, something that's not superficial, then there's probably some interest in the underworld. And while the underworld can be a place of deep transformation and fascination, there is also, of course, the very painful side of the underworld. And there is the way that sometimes we get dragged into the underworld, as it were, when we're experiencing loss or some kind of deep grief process, and we can't seem to get back up to the surface. It's hard to have fun or to just take it easy, and we feel totally submerged. We're like, we can't get away from our dark thoughts. And this is a place where mm, I can say I've been there many times in my life, but I know that when I went there the first few times. It felt like I was actually going to die. It's like, you're not sure that you're going to get out. And I know that sounds super dramatic to say, but as I've gone through multiple cycles now and come back up and out of difficult experiences, and I've had numerous cycles of healing and grief and just different seasons of life, and that I've studied astrology, I've learned about different ways to inhabit the depths or how to inhabit the underworld. But something that is really interesting about inhabiting this underworld space is that it is a precursor to having a deeper and a bigger life. The ego, in a sense, is losing some of the reference points that it was holding onto, perhaps in our previous identity or previous life. And we're in this kind of transformative liminal twilight space. We really get in touch with our personal power when we move through this space, find our gifts, and then come back up to the world and are able to integrate those gifts. I think something that's really important about being on a spiritual path, and so being someone who is seeking more light and grace and miracles in their life that there's also this complementary awareness of the depths and the underworld so that we're not in what we often hear as the term spiritual bypass. And I'm actually all for elevating vibration and healing and bringing light to things. 
but it is part of a holistic process. Even the astrology wheel of Aries through Pisces represents the totality of different experiences that we can have. And different experiences can be different um, combinations of archetypes. So it's not just, it's like a color wheel holding all the colors and different colors on the wheel can blend together to make new colors, that kind of thing. But when it comes to thinking about these different archetypes, there's Scorpio, right? Which is the underworld and the depths and transformation. And there's also signs like Leo, which is about play and fun and humor. And so within this life that we are living, there's many different spaces of consciousness, many different octaves within that. And some of the themes that I keep coming back to on this show have to do with combining the spiritual path with a psychological or a personal development path and how intertwined those two things really are. And so on today's episode, I had Erica Jones on the show. She's an astrologer that I met through the PCC community, which is the grad school that I attended. Um, That program is Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness at the California Institute of Integral Studies. The mission of that program is to reimagine the human species as a mutually enhancing member of the Earth community. So it's a really interesting philosophy program because it is one that takes into account that we are part of a living cosmos. And so when we ask the questions, the big philosophical questions of how to live or what is truth, it's not coming from this place that we're on a rock that is meaningless, that is hurling around in meaningless space. But we are addressing the questions of, you know, what is this condition within humanity such that we have set up a society to destroy or to not honor the earth, to have these kind of normalized psychoses, basically, where we're doing things that go against life and our survival, but it's normalized and embedded within the culture. And how how did this come to be and how might it change? So some very interesting and thoughtful people are drawn to this program, and I met some really amazing people. And I actually, she's an alumni, and I met Erica for the first time two Norwax ago, and this is the Northwest Astrological Conference. And it was at this conference where she was presenting on the generation of Saturn and Capricorn people who are having their first Saturn returns, who have that triple conjunction of Uranus, Neptune, and Saturn. Very interesting generation. And so something that I've really come to love about the PCC community is that there is a mystical side to many of the the thoughts um, and the thinkers and the philosophers that orbit around that program are a part of that program. And there's this combination of academic rigor with mysticism or with mystical ideas that produces some really electric ideas that are very thorough and very substantial. So this was a great opportunity to just talk to someone who's thought about Pluto and astrology with the synthesis of these different studies and thinkers like Jung or Bill Plotkin, who does a lot of work about the underworld and the soul. This episode happens to be very astrological in nature. 
And it's also accessible to anyone interested in psychology and archetype, which is really how we enter this conversation. And we speak to what the psychological underworld is. And after we laid out some psychological foundation for our discussion, we dialogued about the astrology portion of this, about Pluto and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune. And we talked about these archetypes at different octaves of themselves. What is the version of this archetype Pluto when healing and holing work hasn't occurred? Versus what is Pluto when it is highly embodied in a holistic way? And I feel like some of these thoughts are super important, especially if you are studying astrology, to have these higher visions of what the planets are so that that possibility can be courted in our own lives. Erica is an astrologer, and her astrological work is titled The Real Imaginal, which is a project about revitalizing the human relationship to the planetary archetype of Neptune. And she writes that this is a process of re-enchantment, defined in part by the attempt to regain a sense of belonging in a living, aware cosmos. If you visit her website at realimaginal.com, you can take a pretty deep dive with her on what it means to be re-enchanted and why that's so important. And as you'll tell from this episode, Erica is a really deep perceiver and thinker. This conversation opened me up to some new ways about thinking about one of my biggest planetary companions, which is Pluto. And as a very Plutonic person myself, it was healing to understand from a new angle why I've felt and perceived so intensely my whole life and why that has put me on a personal development path and driven my interest in the esoteric And now as an astrologer practicing Pluto-centered astrology, evolutionary astrology, I spend so much time with Pluto that this conversation had a way of supercharging me. And I trust that this will also be soul food for thought for you as well. So here is my conversation with Erica Jones. Hi, Erica. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sabrina. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, I'm super excited to talk to you about astrology and the underworld. And so the first thing that I want to ask you is how you got into astrology. Well, um, way back when (laughs) I was a teenager, I came across those little um, scrolls of uh, horoscopes for different signs for all the zodiac signs. They would sell them in convenience stores in the 80s. And I remember reading mine and being very intrigued, like, oh, this sounds a lot like me. And so I was quite drawn to it and um, also read a lot of mythology as a kid. Um, And so I'd say, you know, in my late teens, I was quite interested in astrology, but then I kind of, I got pulled away from that and into more worldly concerns and only rediscovered it uh, in 2000, I want to say five, six, 2006, uh, whenever I took a course in psychology and spirituality at my undergrad institution, Antioch University, Seattle. Um, that's where I finished my bachelor's degree. And, um, we were to read the, the beginning of Richard Tarnas's book, Cosmos and Psyche, which had just come out, like literally had just come out. And we were only, we weren't assigned the astrology. We were actually assigned like the first 50 pages, which is um, his introduction to the, you know, the idea of, of worldviews and the development of worldviews, etc. And I was just grabbed by that introduction. It was, it 
spoke to so much of what I had been interested in in going back to school. And so I picked up, you know, the the 700 page book and decided to read the whole thing. And it took me because I was taking other courses and my life was falling apart at that time. It took me a few, quite a few months to get through it. But by the time I finished that book, I, you know, I, my whole life had changed. I mean, it, it just opened me up to parts of myself that had gone dormant for a very long time. And, um, yeah, it was, it was an incredible, um, journey. Little did I know what, what a journey would take me on, but that was really my reinitiation into seeing the world as enchanted. That's amazing. It sounds revelatory to you to come across that book. And it sounds like it really took you away and brought you into the astrology world all over again. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Very much so, so. What's your sun sign? Now I'm curious. <laughs> well, um, Sagittarius is my sun sign. And um, I, I think that I was pretty stereotypical, you know, as a youth, (laughs) I was more my sun than my moon, probably in some ways. Well, that makes sense. Um, The pursuit of knowledge is very Sagittarian. And when it comes to how did astrology lead you into the underworld and interests in the underworld as well? Or was that separate? And how did you get into kind of inquiring or exploring the underworld as an idea? Well, um, I was dragged there (laughs) about the same time that I discovered Cosmos and Psyche. Um, My, I'd say at the same time, really, my husband had decided he would end our marriage. And I really did not want want that to happen. And so I resisted that with all my might. Um, And it took about four months, really, for me to accept that 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 our marriage was over. And uh, I think that I would not have even taken that course, psychology and spirituality, if uh, that had not happened, because it was such, it so challenged and really destroyed my ego, my sense of self, uh, that it opened me up to other possibilities and actually needing, (laughs) needing other narratives and other ways of understanding what I was going through. Uh, So, really and i and i do want to say like this is a very underworld perspective that was one of the biggest gifts my ex-husband ever gave me was to leave me and um to send me on that journey to send me to hell he was like a guardian at the threshold is how i came to see him and uh without that i would not like i just would not have discovered who i am and and that kind of heartbreak and uh loss and pain is quite often what will uh, open people up to the realms of the underworld and of soul and of, um, I suppose, making sense of, of tragedy and finding a, a good home for and to make meaning out of the terrible things that, that happen to us that are just a part of life, that really we um, things are not in our control. And I think that there is quite a modern delusion that things that life and and the planet and everything is and should be under human control, but it just is not. And um, various things will come along and, and show us that. And that was, for me, what sucked me down and forced me to understand something, something of those realms. And so the soul, you see the soul is very connected to the underworld? Yes. Um, 
the soul is, mm, it's not a literal thing. Um, I rather like the way that uh, depth eco-psychologist Bill Plotkin talks about it. Um, I also favor James Hillman's views on it, but uh, Plotkin really thinks of it. I think Hillman agrees that uh, it's more of a viewpoint upon things and it's not so it's not like this thing or an object that we have or even anything that might survive our death necessarily. Um, but it's, it's more uh, this amorphous quality. It, it feels very other from us. Um, it's something that, that feels uh, foreign or alien or sometimes even hostile to our sense of self. It can, it can have that quality of demanding um, that we expand our notion of self of what we are and what we are capable of and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's often very ambiguous. Um, a lot of our powers, our sense of, of, um, not even right and wrong. It's just our, our sense of agency and power of, uh, ability to act upon the world. Uh, really, I think comes, comes from this, this, thing that we can try to conceptualize, which is uh, called soul. That's interesting, Erica. I actually, I do think of the soul as a distinct object that we, Mm -hmm. that survives death. So I'm, I want to hear more about uh, this other perspective of soul as being something Mm -hmm. that is not that. Um, And maybe that will just come through our conversation, but I'm, um, I'm intrigued because I, I don't tend to think of soul that way. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm definitely not an ideologue about these things. (laughs) So I'm, I'm open to all. Yeah. I'm open to all different perspectives on it. And that's a soulful, that's a soulful orientation right there to say that there is not one truth, but in fact that there are many multiple perspectives that can coexist and sometimes they fight or they disagree or they, they turn up different perspectives, but there's no claim to um, this sort of like univocal or single truth. That's Mm. a very soulful perspective, the multiplicity it allows. Yeah. And so what is the underworld then um, in terms of is the underworld an object or also a state of being? It seems to be more of a, a state of consciousness. Um, it, it's a way of um, perceiving the world. It's, it's very it's bizarre. It's really a bizarre place because there's so many contradictions in it. And um, if, if, people listening might want to reflect on times of being, um, of going through a, a, a serious traumatic event or, uh, the loss of a loved one or, um, just any, any, or a sickness and illness can, can take us into this place of where we don't, we don't even recognize ourselves or what is happening to us. And mm, it's a, it's a place that, really turns up uh, the, the surprising that it's usually the ugly or the deformed <laughs> is what we will find in the mm. underworld. And it takes a little while of sitting with each person or thing that we might encounter in the underworld to, to see its beauty, to see its um, belonging to us and to the world. Uh, so there's like a repulsive quality quite often to what we find in those realms. And yet they are absolutely vital to our well-being, actually, and to our wholeness and to our um, 
I'd say, ability to, to be resilient in the face of what life will throw at us. Wow. Yeah, that really gives me kind of memories of different times in my life where I'm pretty sure I was in the underworld. And the way you're describing it is very accurate, that sense of things being like repulsive or it's like the reference points have changed and it's uncanny Mm -hmm. or Twilight Zone-esque. And when you think about um, the underworld in terms of your studies and ideas that you've um, explored the underworld through, what have been some of your influences and some ideas that you've really resonated with? Hmm. Well, you know, I'll name a few of the people who have explored the underworld in a psychological way, because uh, it is totally possible to go to the underworld and have no psychological understanding of, of what's going on, of being just possessed by uh, an impulse or a, even a group uh, or an, a mentality and not even be aware. But the idea that we can actually be become more conscious and engage with the underworld, that's um, what I've been quite interested in. And I mentioned James Hillman and Bill Plotkin, and then there's Clarissa Pinkola Estes and Thomas Moore and Sylvia Brinton Pereira and surely others, Marianne Woodman. I think a lot of her work points towards that. And, and really, you know, the people that I name, they're very strongly influenced by the psychology of Carl Jung. Uh, but I really, I do want to cr- offer a critique if I could. Of, yeah, of go Jung, for it. Of Jungians, so-called Jungians, um, whether they're analysts or well-known or not. You know, Jung was not a Jungian. <laughs> Jung was not a Jungian. And he he went on this profound journey, this um, this destruction of everything that he knew. And he was able to come back from it. And he tried to assist others, right, on their own journey. He built a concept, a conceptual system to try to, to help people on that kind of journey. But I, you know, it's my experience and witness that so many people who call themselves unions really haven't taken that journey. They haven't like been scraped across the bottom of the ocean floor and like almost drowned <laughs> and have to, to find their own inner resources to come out. And um, you know, there's this interesting book called Lament of the Dead uh, that is a dialogue between James Hillman and a scholar, Sonu Shamdasani, uh, who actually put together Jung's Red Book and um, the Red Book, which chronicles Carl Jung's journey into the underworld and journey into um, even discovering his own psychology that he then um, tried to offer to others. But in Lament of the Dead, Hillman and Shamdasani come to say something to the effect that Jung created like a system of handrails, handrails to help people find their way into and then back out of the unconscious or the underworld. But the problem now is that that Jungians have mistaken the handrails for the process. Because they're really like the terms and the conceptual frameworks that we develop, really, they don't replace that process of going beyond the ordinary and going beyond the ego. Uh, Because really what's happening in those moments, whenever we're called to a greater experience of ourself, which can be just traumatic, it can be traumatic, literally, 
what's happening then? We're, we're going into a terra incognito. We're going into an unrecognizable land. And that's really how you know you're in the underworld because you don't recognize yourself. You don't recognize those things because they were unconscious. They just weren't visible to oneself, whether they're feelings or emotions or, or, um, even a sense of belonging or alienation. And it's, it's really possible to get lost in that world. And a lot of people do. So it's like, we do need guides, but truly the guide is just not the journey. The guide is not the journey itself. And I think that that is something uh, crucial to, to recognize about, you know, whether you're studying it or you're engaging it or trying to assist others in their engagement with it. Hmm. And what you are saying about people finding their inner resources and that's how they get back out of the underworld, can you speak more to that? Yeah. Um, so the, well, the map that I use, uh, because not because I think it's objectively true, but because I have found it very useful, um, was drawn up by Bill Plotkin in his book, uh, Wild Mind. But he also discusses it in his book, um, uh, which is more about developmental psychology uh, called Nature and the Human Soul. And, uh, you know, Plotkin's trying to, to provide a way for us to not only engage with our fragments, um, which are the parts of us that are perhaps immature, um, are frozen at a certain age, uh, come out of like a coping mechanism for trauma. So like the, the addicts of us, the escapists of us, the um, authoritarian, ty- you know, like tyrannical parts of us or um, the, the pleasers. I mean, there are all these different, um, let's say, undeveloped or immature parts of ourselves that we can access uh, consciously and not just be possessed by whenever we are also in dialogue with our resources of wholeness. And um, one of the things that that I really appreciate about Plotkin's work is that he points out how much of psychology really focuses on what's broken and like that we're just permanently broken. And I can't tell you how many people I have met who have, um, who just so identify with the diagnosis and don't get beyond it and, and think that, oh, well, you know, this is my problem and that's why it'll never get better. Whereas the truth is that for a lot of us and not everyone, I mean, not everyone can, um, move beyond certain things, but a lot of us can. And so Plotkin sort of lifts up and emphasizes the uh, parts of wholeness of ourselves. So um, like the inner loving parent, that's like the, the, the bedrock, I think, for all self-healing kind of work is to actually get in touch with access, develop, and learn to, to root in the part of us that is unconditionally loving, that accepts us completely, no matter what. Uh, because from that that place, uh, we can invite in uh, that which is good and that which is bad and have more choice over um, our responses to things. And it's definitely a process. It's not like, oh, I'm in touch with my inner adult. I'm never going to you know, throw a tantrum again. Well, forget that. Um, we're always falling off the wagon, so to speak. And um, it, even, gosh, I think even someone who had good, good contact with their, their loving inner nurturing adult self um, for 30 years, even, you know, with a steady 
contact with that part of self still is going to mess up, still is going to flip out from time to time. So it's not about perfection or uh, never making a mistake or never learning anything new. Uh, but in fact, just this um, really cultivating all the parts, but particularly those parts of wholeness. And that's what I would call the inner resources. And Plotkin breaks them out into uh, a map that is that corresponds to times of the day. And this is one of the coolest things that I discovered experientially um, using his framework and through um, his organization, Animus Valley Institute, um, was that at certain times of day, it's easier to access different parts of ourselves so whether that's morning or high, high noon or in the evening or late at night, um, it's actually possible to access different resources and different parts of ourselves, be those fragments um, or things that we need to integrate or the parts of wholeness. And so he really brings together like the fact that we evolved out of this planet. We're animals and bodies <laughs> and we live on this planet and it birthed us. And, um, and for that reason, our psyche is intimately connected to and interwoven with not just the planets, as um, you and I both love to explore and learn about, uh, but also with the living body of the earth as well. So that's just a, a few things about, about resources. That is so fascinating. Um, that makes me wonder if there's a specific time of day that is more soulful, is it like the night or something? Like yes, what? that's a great question. Um, it's actually, uh, seems to be, uh, I'm trying to think of how to word this because, well, we'll I'll just go with it's, it's when the sun goes down. When the sun goes down and you know that time at twilight where uh, just shapes seem to turn into other things like shadows seem to become like a bear <laughs> or a cat or a spooky thing um, at twilight as the sun is setting and it's not quite dark yet and then it's starting to get dark and then it's dark. That seems to be... Um, when one can really access the, the guide to soul, the muse, the beloved, um, these sorts of archetypes, which guide us into conversation with soul. Soul itself, um, in this framework and in my own experiences, actually can be kind of hard to have um, a literal conversation with. It's quite often um, a, mediator, a mediary will come along to help the, to help the process of conversing with this um, very mysterious aspect of psyche that contains seems to contain quite a bit about our belonging to this planet and perhaps to the to the human community as well. Wow. That is so beautiful and it actually I really can like what you were saying was transportive and thinking about being on like a hike at night or something. Yeah. And starting to see some things shift and also those experiences of getting messages from nature, from dreams or from the psyche that I can't quite understand, but I feel is kind of luring me into a deeper um, or more expanded world, but not in a way that makes sense right away. Yes, exactly. The not making sense right away. I think um, that's one of the keys to working with with soul in these ways. It's um, because the ego is trying to pin things down and make it fit the the our ordinary normal story about ourselves, whereas soul tends to be. Um, 
And I think this is a result of the civilization that you and I are, are participating in and have been steeped in. Soul seems to want to almost undermine or counter or um, expand uh, the ego's sense of self, like who am I and what am I? So it can be very challenging for the ego to just to just stop and listen and be patient and um, allow allow it to speak, allow it to have its voice, and to not try to turn everything into um, a, a specific story about I know exactly what is going on here because usually we don't. <laughs> usually we really don't. Yeah. So that makes me wonder. Um, what do you feel like makes people ready for this kind of journeying or inquiry? Um, mm. Where you know, is it about kind of being pulled in, or how do people enter willingly? Um, it seems to happen by abduction. You know, the story of of Hades pulling Persephone down into the underworld. Um, I, that kind of unpleasant mm, surprise tends to be the initiatory point and readiness. I mean, psyche has its own movements. And I voluntary engagement. I feel like it's something that we have to be called to, Sabrina, because it is so painful, because it is so, um, goodness, like to encounter these parts of ourselves, it's often through the wound and the wound that is the gift. Um, and so, oh, gosh, it's like, I think, I think we're ready to engage soul uh, whenever we're able to look at our woundings and our traumas, no matter how terrible, as more than that. It's almost like being ready to put a new story on things that have happened to us that are completely formative to to our experience. And it's different for different people. Um, I I have come to really respect that, you know, just because I don't think it was terrible that people picked on me and called me names in school for another person, that is absolutely just how was horrific and scarring for them. Or um, if their parents didn't pay attention to them enough. Uh, so it doesn't have to necessarily be something like physical, mental, you know, trauma, literally trauma. Um, but it's something that is uh, in, it just intrudes upon our sense of self. It lands as a wound. And whenever we reach a point of being curious about that story, about being curious about being the outcast or curious about being, um, you know, the one who was sick in hospital for five years, uh, that that signals kind of a, 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 an ability, uh, enough wholeness or at least readiness to enter into it and to, to explore more about what, what's hiding in there. Um, it's a terrifying place to look. And I, I thought it was interesting, uh, Plotkin shared this idea, and I think he did publish it later in one of his later books. But um, how, what an interesting design to hide the most, uh, like our greatest powers, because I really do think that our soul contains our greatest creative capacities to hide it in a place where only an adult would look. A child would never look in these scary places that look repulsive and that say that I'm a terrible person or that um, I'm capable of harm. Uh, a, a child would never look into the wound in that way. 
but the only the adult would. And so he just remarked, it seems like a, a quite an interesting design um, to try to protect <laughs> protect society and um, perhaps the the earth from uh, these these awesome powers that we have that we should be more mature before we access them. Um, and I won't get into what technology has done <laughs> done to make that design to kind of override that design if there is one, if there is a design like that. Interesting. And do you think, um, like, how has studying astrology and the birth chart correlated with exploration of these territories for you? Well, um, I think, well, you know, there are people who are sort of magnetically drawn to the underworld. And if you think of the people with the heavy um, Pluto placement, so Pluto being a planet which really intensifies everything that it touches, um, it, it transforms by deforming. Um, it is about power. It is about, um, and I think of power as the ability to cause or prevent change. Um, and, but that, that ability is actually rooted in our relationship with our fundamental relationship with everything. And so Pluto is uh, like evolution itself. It's, it's just this, it's beyond the personal. It doesn't really give a, a shit about the personal. It doesn't care about whether I necessarily me, I live or die. It, it just wants to persist. And so when people have this um, prominently in their chart, like on an angle or with their natal sun or their moon or an insignificant stellium, or even people uh, with a significant Scorpio, um, placement. So Scorpio sun or moon rising, it's quite, it vibes very much to Pluto. They get drawn to the underworld and, um, it, and it's this desire for depth and intensity and this desire to, to know what's, what's hidden, what's under there. Right. But, um, I've noticed and worked with a lot of people about checking in on what is the motivation to go into the human shadow, because there's so much pain in there. And is our motivation, is it like, do we have reverence for the suffering that's in that shadow? Um, and maybe humility about opening that up? Or is there an inner Jerry Springer figure in us, you know, like an inner, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, the, that insane talk show where people went and acted out all kinds of melodrama and nonsense, right? Is there this inner Jerry Springer that just wants to go in and create uh, a voyeur, basically the voyeur. And that can really show up with plutonic folks or really scorpionic people. And so the, the draw isn't uh, reverence or gentleness or humility, or even a genuine desire to heal suffering. There can be a lot of self-aggrandizing um, stuff going on to spread drama or make a scene. And it even may look like it's not about them. Like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to expose that person. I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. And it's like, why, why, why do you, why do you want to do that? What is the true motivation there? Why expose dirty laundry? Because that shit hurts, and it hurts not only those who are toting it around. Um, so, having to be very mindful of the motivation, and it's fine to uncover and expose. But again, it's like, is it the desire to feel power or be powerful or wound other people the way that you are harmed? Um, and so. It's so important for, for 
anyone that's really drawn to that kind of um, even the righteous sense of I'm I'm going to right wrongs here to actually turn all that allurement to the hidden and the shadow and the unspoken first on oneself to actually be like well actually well well what what am I hiding what's happening in me that is so explosive that I have to go looking in the world for it instead of um, looking at myself and I think from that. Uh, self-development, a really, a very beautiful form of Pluto and Scorpio can come out, but not before, <laughs> um, because it can be very, um, just very seductive. And um, yeah. Erica, and, I'm yeah. so like mesmerized by your description of Pluto. It was so beautiful. And really the way you describe that kind of edge of Pluto or Scorpio signatures in terms of just being attracted to creating drama versus having a true reverence of the underworld is a really beautiful perspective. And um, also that difference in terms of how people are going to act out Pluto in the world when they've done self-development versus when they haven't is a really interesting and important distinction to make. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I, um, I get, I'm very, I have very little patience with uh, the way that so much gets projected onto people's charts. Like if you show even the most seasoned astrologer a chart with a lot of Pluto, the kind of crap that can be said <laughs> about people, because it's usually a very superficial understanding of, of what that planet is. And true enough, very few of us have the guts and the courage and the, the willingness to heal to go into all of that. It does ask a lot. Um, the capacity to, to feel and to understand or to I think going back to the idea that we have parts of wholeness, there is actually a part of us um, within the, the wild map mind that I like to use uh, that is called the indigenous self. And it can actually feel everything because emotions flow. Um, the, one of the roots of, of that word emotion is move to move. They move, it moves us. Emotions move us and they're meant to move. They're not meant to be stuck, um, which can happen so frequently uh, because in, in the culture that uh, the mainstream culture that I'm speaking from, uh, emotions can be so taboo and people don't know what to do with them. And so Pluto can also function to repress and push down because it's so it's so big. <laughs> it's so big and it's so um, mm, overwhelming when there are no resource, no tools out there or, and no modeling for how to actually uh, feel these tremendous uh, feelings and to, to have these tremendous urges of, of ambition of what to do with that. So um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's definitely, these are you know, those who are born with really strong scorpionic or plutonic drives, it, it really, for that to be healthy, it does require, um, so I think support, we can't do this stuff alone, um, support and a hell of a lot of love and compassion for oneself and to go into, to the, to the wound and into, um, the, just the ability to feel and to see so much because it does confer the capacity to see things far more deeply uh, than most people. And that brings with it a sense of responsibility sometimes, um, but then also just this uh, overwhelm of what do I do with it? And it touches, I see this stuff out there and it touches me inside in such a way. Um, 
ah, <laughs> you know, what, what do I do with this? Do I go volcanic? Do I um, disappear, shut down? There are a lot of, of responses um, that could be less than healthy. But I think that that is more a, a measure or a function of the culture than of the placement itself, let's say. And so that's when I get really um, annoyed <laughs> with the way uh, that that's talked about sometimes. Right. I think um, as we've discussed some things before, um, you had told me that astrology and studying astrology advanced you or advanced your personal work. And I can really relate to that. I feel like studying astrology helped me gain some frameworks to change my life and learning the Pluto story, learning the multivalence of that archetype helped me make different choices and interact with energy in a much different way. Um, so I'm curious how you orient um, some of the different maps and worldviews and um, practices that you're working with to bring some of these insights um, about the soul and the underworld and astrology into um, practice or integration or what can support people with integration or implementation, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it does. I, I really do think that of, well, I think of astrology as a kind of a, a cosmic ecology. Um, it says that our psyche is as big as at least the solar system. <laughs> you know, maybe it's galactic, maybe it's it's beyond our concept, but astrology at least does point to this uh, deep, deep interconnection between uh, what we experience here on Earth and the planet's the solar system that we belong to and so this i like to think i really appreciate how it can astrology can heal so many of the divisions that are in the modern world between self and the world and um especially if if it's a more embodied kind of practice and uh, I find that astrology can be terribly abstract, where we're only discussing concepts and we're not bringing it back to, well, how does that feel even in my body? And how do I enact this in my day-to-day -day in reflection, um, reflecting on the day about how various archetypes showed up for me and what, what also then parts of me showed up was it my wounded child took that on or was it this um, the psychologist of me was able to show up and to be present to something that happened so um, yeah I would say that astrology easily accelerated my path by about 10 years easily um, I took a 10-year jump when I combined it with the depth eco-psychology I've been describing uh, and I would really I really think that astrology by itself is not going to to reliably lead to maturation. I mean, there are parts that uh, just by the exposure of all the different, um, as, as you were describing, like, oh, there's more than one way to do Pluto, or there's more than one way to, to do Saturn. There's more than one way to be the moon. Uh, just that exposure can, can help ac us access the existing resources that are, are within us. And I mean, that's kind of the cool thing is like, we're not having to manufacture, um, the artist of us or the um, the positive trickster of us it, it already exists and it's just a matter of discovery but really insight is easy integration is is hard that's that's the work for me so uh 
you know, after I get an astrology reading, I, I sit with that for a couple of years, man. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, and work it and work it. And, you know, it, it's, I, for me, I've just combined it with uh, the astrological work with the minds, the map of the mind and uh, a developmental psychology framework, which like, again, I, I don't take that to be the absolute utter truth. I think that many different frameworks can work for different people. And uh, psyche is multi multivalent. It is um, really part of the mystery. It's so beyond um, any any way of, of pinning it down and saying, this is what it is. Because, my gosh, um, our concepts about the world are all very provisional and very um, situational. I, I, I really hope I can make this point uh, to kind of bring some humility and curiosity for heaven's sake, like curiosity into uh, our explorations of different ways of even approaching astrology or of approaching personal development. It's like, we come out. We come out of a thirteen point eight billion year process. At least this is the story that modern science tells us, and that's just a story, because this what we are in is so vast. It's so beyond us. Our concepts about it are like, I mean, come on, let's be humble. <laughs> so, so I I have found a system that has really worked with me to to identify what needs to be healed. So what's wounded? What's um, I don't have good access to what, you know, where I wake up in the morning, I go like, who was that last night? You know, like those parts of me to identify those parts of me and also ways of, of bringing myself into better conversation with those parts because our wounds, our the little children in us never go away. We always will have them. It's just what is the nature of our relationship to them? Can we love them and let them know that they're safe now and they don't have to come out and try to solve our problems anymore? That in fact, we have come into access um, when it's true that we have come into access to the parts of us that are mature adult um, that whenever... um, Say, oh, there it happened again. Um, My friend stood me up for a date. Uh, this has happened the 20th time and maybe with the same person instead of having the same story that links back to an abandonment that happened in childhood for a lot of us that's quite often the case um, instead of that to be actually curious and wonder like that's that's the difference between being in in wholeness and being kind of stuck in this um kind of a groundhog day scenario where the same thing keeps happening again and again and again, because there's only the one story about it. Um, that part, the parts of wholeness are actually able to be ex- extremely curious about what is happening and open to new information. And that's what allows us to build, um, you know, deeper, richer relationships. I mean, it really bring, talks about um, tending the moon, the lunar parts of ourselves and the Venusian parts of ourselves, the moon and Venus really relating to our capacity to relate, to feel, to be connected, uh, to feel belonging and to offer and, and to give, to receive love. Mm. Do you think so? Would it be resonant to say that there's certain forces related to wholeness? Like you said, curiosity and the inner parent who's compassionate. Like, are there certain traits um, or things to activate that create wholeness? Hmm. 
well, I think that there is um, also like the well, the willingness to take risks and to try new things uh, that kind of goes in, along with curiosity. Like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. Uh, it's a, it's, it, there, are, there are hallmarks of confidence. Of, and confidence isn't like, um, I got to say, it, confidence doesn't mean you're not going to screw up. Um, in fact, confidence is okay with screwing up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, confidence is like, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to experiment and see what happens. And if things don't go the way that I wanted them to, then I can step back and evaluate. It's not the end of the world. Um, whereas with the fragments of us, everything is just sort of like this uh, terminal story uh, where there's only one way that things are going to turn out and it's either good or bad as opposed to, Oh, there's this multiplicity of outcomes. Some of it's good. Some of it, ooh, ooh, I, you know, I regret that. Um, but it, th- there's almost like this open endedness to the experience of nothing is ever fully finished. Nothing is ever, the, you know, the final word hasn't been issued on a thing that has a thing that has transpired. Um, and, one one guy I've been reading a bit lately, Stephen Jenkinson. Oh gosh, I hope I can say this the right way. Where he was like, you know, if if you think that you can uh, tell a story about your life, and and especially in the middle of things happening, and you think you know what is going on, well, you weren't really there because that's not true. There is no way that we can actually make sense of things in the moment as they are happening, as this neat little story, this neat little package of, of events. It's all ongoing. It's all still happening constantly. All the time, life is happening as this um, as a process. And I think that also invites the, the curiosity in, and the willingness. For me, it's like the willingness to, to, to show up, to be present, the willingness to even to be hurt. Um, because the ten- because we're such we're such deep feeling creatures we're we're sensitive. I mean, look at our skin. Um, we're just totally permeable and open to the environment. We're we're built to feel, and uh, of course, it's <laughs> we want to close off. There's so much pain out there. But my gosh, you can't you can't close off the pain without losing the joy and the celebration. That is that is our birthright. So I think that that. Uh, openness to to life and to being hurt is what also gives us the openness to life and to celebration and to happiness and joy and um, truly loving. That's so beautiful. I really, it's interesting. That was giving me a flashback of not too long ago, like having an intense emotion and like almost kind of like something came over me and I was like, whoa. And I like sat with myself through it and maybe the compassionate parent came over me, but I was like, oh, like, I'm just going to stay with you right now. Like while you're feeling this, because there was another impulse that to just run away or to shut down about, I don't want to feel this. This is like on the Mm. list of emotions or sensations that I'm not supposed to feel. Um, And after going through and just feeling it, but having that other part of me wash over that was like, this is okay. And I'm here for you. Uh, things transformed and like life moved on in a significant way that I don't think would have happened otherwise. So I think it's a really interesting 
um, identifier that that parent and like this sense of being able to be with and be present and not self abandon that that can be really powerful for people. Mm, absolutely, yes, and that so reminds me of of the moon, the archetype of the moon. It's both the mother and the child, and what a wonderful thing to 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 contain that all within oneself. And, um, and again, I, I don't think that we can do everything alone. We, we are very social animals, but at the same time, um, ah, yes, an important hallmark of, of, or how to identify, is this a, a fragment of me? Is this a wounded part of me that I need to love and to listen to, to really hear what it's saying and communicating? Um, but maybe not act on, uh, its remedy, <laughs> like its prescription for how to respond, um, the fragments of us tend to look to the outside world to fix everything. Um, and that's the stance of the dependent child. So, uh, which, you know, all, most of our fragments were, were formed in childhood when we were dependent, completely, utterly dependent on others to care for us. We could not meet our own needs. That's a reality. That's a powerful reality. And I think that's why... Um, so much of psychology as, as, as it has developed over the last 120 years has focused on childhood because it was such a vulnerable time. And yet, lo and behold, um, we can come in and we can listen to that part of us that is just screaming for the outside world to, to fix it or to be different or someone to be something for us. There's a part of us that can come in and tend to that and then then turn outwards and meet our own needs. Um, and that to mm. me is just like, that's the evolution of the moon that happens uh, perhaps not, not in a clockwork kind of developmental way. It can come later to some people, earlier to others, and some people never get there. Um, that's just a fact of, of what Psyche is capable of. Um, there's so many possibilities. And I think really honoring each of our individual unique journeys is, is so important um, to not compare ourselves and say, oh, I should be somewhere. Well, where you are is exactly where you should be. And really being there <laughs> where you are is how things change, as you described so beautifully. I'm going to be here with this happening right now. I'm going to be present and hold this. And that was how things could move and something new could emerge. So, um, yeah, that looking for it whenever parts of us need someone else to be different or do something different, um, I, that tends to point towards it's an it's a, uh, unintegrated part of ourselves, a young, hurting part of ourselves um, that's, that's trying to, to solve a problem that it doesn't have the resource or the capacity to solve. Wow. I'm going to keep that in mind. <laughs> it's a good, it's an interesting trigger to notice because it can be one of those unconscious ones where you really mm -hmm. do feel indignant or righteous. Like that person should be doing this, but that might not actually be the case. Right. Yes. Or even the solution to, to, to getting out of the painful situation. Right. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can speak more to some of the other planetary archetypes as you did with Pluto in terms of how they shift as more healing um, or holing work occurs. Yeah. So um, I really like to think about the difference in Saturn 
and uh, how that shows up by transit or even in personal experience. All right, guys, go check out part two of this episode to hear the rest of our conversation as we dive into Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Part two is coming out the same day as this episode. So if you're listening to this, it's already out there. Go listen to it and I'll catch you on the other side. 